You are listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic at the age of only 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was by my positive mindset or maybe something deeper which enabled me to bounce back, to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity but who have come back stronger. Today, I'm welcoming Charmaine Obey-Chinoy to the podcast. Charmaine is a double Oscar award-winning film director and journalist. She is also the only female director to have been awarded two Academy Awards by the age of 37 and the first Pakistani to win an Oscar. Charmaine is not only acclaimed for her work in documentaries, which often centre on human rights and gender equality, but she has directed two episodes of the Marvel superhero TV series and has now been appointed as the director of the new Star Wars film, making her the first female and person of colour to be given that role. Charmaine is the recipient of many honours and awards over the years. One that I thought was pretty cool to mention was that she has been included in Time magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. On a personal level, what may become apparent throughout this interview is that Charmaine and I actually go way back. Our fathers were close friends, meeting in the textile industry and forming a firm and I suppose unlikely friendship in the 80s, which would see our two families often meeting in London. And I even attended Charmaine's wedding in Karachi. And let me tell you, that was the most incredible week. And I have some amazing memories of the parties, the food, the clothes. But the purpose of today is not to reminisce, but I want to ask Charmaine about her life and incredible work and how she found the determination, strength and power to forge such a successful career in the film industry as a Pakistani female. Charmaine, sorry for the long introduction. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Emma. Thank you so much for coming. I'm really, really looking forward to this chat. I remember attending the premiere of your Oscar award winning film, Saving Face, back in 2012 and feeling back then, really inspired by your success. So tell me, I've listed some of your incredible achievements. Do you have a career highlight so far? I think um, my career highlight has been a has been when I have impacted legislation, when I have used film uh, to push the boundary in my home country of Pakistan. In 2016, I did a film uh, which was called A Girl in the River, which was about uh, honor killing. Honor killings are... Um, the terminology is used by men uh, who kill women because they have transgressed some unwritten rule. You know, a young woman decides to get married uh, in her own free will or um, she decides to get a divorce and her uncle or father or husband feel like she has dishonored them. And they will murder her for that. And, you know, when I made this film, there was no specific legislation that dealt with honor killing, which meant that if a father killed his daughter, 
other family members could forgive him because um, we have a concept in Islam of blood money, which is that you can forgive murder in lieu of money. And that sort of is a very ancient concept that was there in order to, you know, to level things in case people need the money when a, when someone who has been um, a breadwinner in the family is killed. Um, but in a modern day sense, it was being abused. And so we wanted to use the film to push legislation that would uh, make sure that the perpetrators of honor killings would go to jail, that there would be no forgiveness or blood money in that. And is that that's the film? Am I right in saying you won an Academy Award for it? And in your speech, you thanked the Prime Minister. That is absolutely. I thanked the Prime Minister of Pakistan and put the onus on him uh, because I knew the telecast was live and that um, you know hundreds of thousands of people around the world were watching that the Prime Minister of Pakistan had pledged to change the law. And lo and behold, um, he did change the law about wow. six months later. Um, I've always found in my career that you need to hold people accountable and 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 really say it as it is sometimes when you are you know on this world stage and you say things people are compelled to do things and i i found that in that case that was very much uh what happened so how did he change the law what changed so th there was a loophole in the law that allowed for forgiveness. The legislation that we wanted to push would close that loophole. And that's exactly what we did. And his political party at that time, the prime minister's political party, controlled the parliament that allowed him to have the numbers that was needed to pass that legislation. That's amazing. And tell me, growing up in Karachi as a little girl, did you, did you think you were going to have this impact? You know, I grew up in a household where I was always asking questions and difficult questions. And, you know, I have led a life in which I, as a woman, uh, as a young girl, could go to school, ha had access to education, could um, had protection from my family. I was allowed to follow my dreams and so many young women around the world, including in my own home country of Pakistan, do not have the same opportunities. I found at a very young age, I think I was 10, when I first realized that um, there was a lot of inequality and that made me very angry and the anger led to questions that no one wanted to answer because, you know, when you're older, you're used to the inequality. You just sort of feel that it's par for the course. For a 10-year-old, it's not par for the course. And so I would ask these difficult questions and my mother would say, one day she got really fed up with my questioning and said, you should write, write about this. And I became a print journalist when I was 14 years old. I started putting my questions to my home, to my country, to my people, asking them, why does this inequality exist? And I think that's when my early sort of seeds of being a difficult person, um, a difficult woman uh, was born. And I, I, I say that uh, with a lot of pride because I feel like being a difficult woman um, never taking no for an answer has allowed me to have a career in which I have kicked open doors that have previously been closed for women. Yeah, because I remember growing up in Pakistan, you had several sisters and I seem to remember your dad often joking like, when's the boy going to come? You know, there was, Absolutely. I, I do remember that. So do you think gender inequality was a thing in your household or wider out in Pakistan? 
I think my parents brought us up as their sons, but I always there was this inherent sort of um, feeling that something was missing because my father didn't have a son. And we all wanted to make sure that he never felt that he didn't have a son. And so we pushed ourselves harder to to fill that void. And I think when we got older, he became so used to the fact that he didn't have a son. He treated us like his sons. Eventually, he did have a son um, when I was 21 years old. But I think... Because we were trying to fill that void, because we wanted to feel like, why do you need a son? You have daughters, they're equally good, that we kept pushing ourselves more and more and more. And I felt like he never said, no, you can't do that or "You no, you can't do this. And I think that somewhere in between us pushing and him giving us the space, my sisters and I, all of us are working women. All of us, uh, you know, have achieved uh, something in our lives. And all of us are living the lives that we feel that we uh, deserve, that are empowered, that um, we make our own decisions. You know, um, sometimes when people look at Pakistani women and they ask me, you know, how free are Pakistani women? And and my, my answer to that always is freedom lies in the wings your parents and your family give you. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point, actually. Um, and as a docu- documentary maker, you you amplify the voices of marginalised communities around the world. And often these communities have no one else speaking out for them. So you spoke about the 2016 um, A Girl in the River, about honour killings. And then there was the victims of acid attacks, wasn't there? That was Saving Face in 2012. Um, so have there ever been any times where you've kind of put yourself at risk and you've been scared or physically threatened or tell me about that when I became a documentary filmmaker um, I was in my 20s and you know when you're in your 20s you think you're invincible not you know you just feel you're invincible I think it's the power of being young and so I made a film in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in Syria and East Timor I often found myself in conflict zones or post-conflict zones and I never thought about the danger. I always thought about the story and how that story was going to affect change. Because very early in my life, I realized that film has the power to change the way people see things, that I wasn't just a filmmaker, but that I could be a conduit for people who were change makers, or I could be a change maker using film to achieve something. And so... In my 20s, when I was trapezing around the world, I was only thinking about how the films I was creating were going to change the way people see things. And um, I think now that I look back at uh, the work that I've done, or I sometimes, if I'm watching a clip, I'm, I think back to that time, and I'm like, I cannot believe that I did that. I mean, I, I put myself in danger knowingly, unknowingly, but I did. Um, but, you know, at that particular time, I did not recognize that danger. Really? You just didn't feel it? I didn't feel it. And, you know, it, Emma, it's interesting because when you speak to journalists who are young and who are chasing a story or who are just starting out in their careers, they're very... Um, optimistic Um, they think they can change the world and I think it's a combination of feeling invincible 
optimism that your story is going to impact something and change things that fuel you um that become your armor that you, you that you um envelop yourself in um and you just keep soldiering on and when age is more on your side and you you have a few white hairs and you're sitting one day um and thinking about your life and and then you begin to piece things together and you're like oh that was a trap or oh i could have really been kidnapped or killed <laughs> in that situation um but at that time i wasn't thinking about that yeah. i was really thinking about the people i was making a film about and who they were and um how my film was going to hopefully change things for them do you think becoming a parent changed you i think becoming a parent did change me um it made me softer but i don't think that it was that just that because when i became a parent um the first time i was 32 years old and um i um was still doing some work that i would consider borderline dangerous um and i think it was when i was in my late 30s uh, that one day it really just hit me that um putting yourself in danger all the time um is like playing russian roulette um and <laughs> so um i still speak out i still um put myself in situations which people would think um are dangerous um but i put a lot of thought into them now um i just don't pick up my bag and go okay. I, i i think about them so was your main goal always to make a change i think from the time that i became a print journalist um it was about empathy holding up a mirror to society and changing the way people saw issues and that has always been my core so a lot of things have changed but that has always been the core of my work mm. and um i realized in 2006 when i was making a film in the philippines called city of guilt it was about access to contraceptives for poor women um the philippines is a catholic country where they limit the access of contraceptives to women and as we know the poorer you are the harder it becomes for you and the story was about these entire neighborhoods where women have five six children one is breastfeeding one is two are on their hips four are around them and this, they just don't know how to stop having children and the story was about how now many children, many women when they got pregnant they would have herbs or they would go into back street clinics to get abortions and it was really the the dark side and the underbelly of poverty and helplessness and how religion is is sort of uh used in some way to to justify that and um likan which was a non-profit organization that was working to provide women with contraceptives um and was part of the film used that film to lobby the government to bring about change and um showed them that uh the alternative was that women would find themselves in unsafe places and they would die and when i saw likan doing that in 2006 i thought to myself oh my film is not just a film it can be used 
in other ways. And that's where it planted the seed in my head that I could use film to affect change. Mm. But with that comes as well, like I've heard you say that you're known in your country for highlighting issues which make men feel very uncomfortable. So how has that gone down with your Pakistani friends and family? I will say that my work generally makes men uncomfortable, Pakistani and otherwise, (laughs) because I work so much around the world. Um, I think that my father, um, who... um, was very amused that I was had decided to become a, a print journalist and, and um, he always thought I would step into textiles. Um, you know, when I was 17 years old, I had gone undercover and I did this um, story for a local newspaper. And when that story was printed, it um, angered a lot of people and they decided to spray paint my spray paint my name and my family's name with unspeakable profanities on our front gate on in our neighborhood sort of around and and the article came out on the morning of the muslim holiday of eid which meant that everything was closed and also on eid people go out and visit family members so everybody was going to be out and everyone would see it and it was done to shame my family and to shame me into silence. And my father um, said something to me that day. Um, He said, if you speak the truth, I will stand with you and so will the world. And then he got a group of people together and they whitewashed the walls. And that to me meant that it was okay to speak the truth that it was okay to make people uncomfortable, that um, at the heart of it, it was important to speak the truth and that someone would always have my back. And I think that the more people get angry about the work that I do, the more it riles them up, the better I sleep at night. Because I think that my work is affecting change, that it's pushing uncomfortable buttons, that people are finding themselves, uh, that people are in discomfort because of something they have seen or heard me say. And I want them to be in discomfort because the world has become a such a bifurcated place. It's all about us and them and... and if making people uncomfortable and holding up a mirror to society will make them realize that we are all a singular, we are all part of a singular humanity, then my job is done. And so, um, of course, my work makes people uh, upset and it riles people up, but it also um, allows young girls to dream. It also shows um, the champions, uh, both men and women who champion for change, that change is possible, that they have allies. So I continue to do that work. And so your family are obviously proud of what you've done in your work. Are you proud of yourself? My family um, are very proud of of, of what what I've accomplished in my life. Um, I think I'm proud of myself. I think that I have um, come from a country that has no film industry really to speak of. I I charted my own path. I became the architect of my own life. Um, I sort of found my calling um, and I no one really told me that here's the yellow brick road that you take. Um, I just... mm, 
chose the, the the films and the subjects that that spoke to me and my heart and I built upon that and I kept building and building and building and and eventually um I came to 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 sort of a a path where um I began to believe that it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from if you work hard the universe will reward you yeah and if you got any initiatives going in Pakistan are you inspiring other women in film um i started a funding and mentorship program for young women in pakistan called pataha pictures pataha means firecracker and um my whole ethos is to create the next generation of firecrackers in my home country and so in the last year and a half we funded 15 films um 30 filmmakers um uh, in pakistan and we are providing them with funding and mentorship um and creating hopefully an ecosystem for the next generation of truth seekers and storytellers in pakistan um i'm also started an artist residency uh called nila asman which means blue sky nila asman um is situated in the mountain ranges of Pakistan. Pakistan is the only country in the world where three mountain ranges meet, the Hindu Kush, the Himalayas and the Karakoram, and at the heart uh, and then the base of those three mountains is an artist residency that I've created where artists from around the world as well as Pakistan can come together. Um it they could be anyone from philosophers and climate change warriors to astronomers to visual artists um to writers um and it's really to create an oasis and a transfer of skills hmm. so you're obviously proud of your pakistani heritage absolutely you know i i think it's so important um to give back to the community that um provided you with um the strength to stand on your own two feet um i also think that i am a vessel of some sort where i um i am a i'm i basically live between many worlds um i live in pakistan but i also live part time in london and new york and a lot of other places and that i've had so many opportunities so many doors have opened for me and i need to open doors for other women it is extremely important to do that yeah how do you how do you marry that that pride in your pakistani heritage with some of the atrocities that you're dealing with in your films like the honor killings and the acid attacks how do you marry that in your head I think about the fact that everywhere in the world there is good and there is bad and that um bad is born out of circumstances that at birth all human beings are equal that it is uh, the opportunities that present themselves the paths that we take the environment that is around us that fuel who we become some of us have more opportunities some of us are exposed to uh things we have a education and uh employment and um uh uh sort of a forward thinking approach others are aggressive because they've lived in a dark world where no one's ever sh- sh- shown a light for them that um they haven't had an education or a well-rounded world view and that their choices are limited because of the exposure that they've had and the paths that they choose are regressive because of that and um and and 
and I know and feel that since human beings are inherently good, that with exposure, with a work, with someone taking a torch and shining a light, that people will blink many, many times in, in the light because they've never been exposed to it, but one day they will open their eyes. Yeah. And um, that's that's what I continue. That's why I continue to do the work that I do. I often put myself in the position of people, and I think to myself, "What would I have done if my life was different? If I didn't have the choices that I was given? If I didn't have education? If my family had not supported my dreams?" If I was born on the other side of the tracks, if I was born in a war-torn country, if I um, was born um, in a country where I wasn't allowed to get an education by law, or if I was not allowed to drive, or if I wasn't allowed to um, exist because I was a woman, if I if I just was not even given basic human rights because of my gender. Fortunately, I, 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 I was presented with an array of opportunities. Yeah. And so I need to take that and in some way give back. And you feel hopeful that change is going to continue in a positive fashion? I think um, the world is becoming a much darker place now than it ever has been. I think that the forces that want to divide us are far um, more vocal um, than the forces that want to unite us. And I think that it is at times like this that we need to look back at our history and we need to champion those voices in our past that have been beacons of hope because there have been dark times in the world before this and there have been champions of hope that have led the way um, and so now it is incumbent upon our generation to do that. And so I always have hope. I think it's important to have hope. Um, and I think it's important to speak out about hope. And it's important to amplify the voices of people who you know will have an impact on the minds of young people. Um, and that's what film does, is amplify the voices of people. Yeah, and I think it's people like you and the changes that you've made in things like legislation which, which give us hope. So, thank you. <laughs> um, you come from a close-knit family. Um, you know, your dad was an amazing man. I met him, obviously, a number of times. He was a force of nature. Um, I probably describe him once met, never forgotten. Um, and tragically, he died very young of cancer. Um, when he was 59, I think. Did his death impact you as a person, as a filmmaker? Um, I think that his death really impacted me. Um, I was pregnant with my first daughter and I didn't see very much of my father because he had cancer and he was being treated in London and I was in Canada having a baby. And, and they, because I was pregnant, they kept a lot of that away from me. Um, and because they wanted to protect me, it was my first child, it was their first grandchild. So they wouldn't tell me all the information uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the eldest daughter should know. And so I didn't really realize how quickly my father was deteriorating. Um, and so his death really impacted me personally, because I just thought that he would be around for a lot longer. Um, he was such a force of nature for all of us. But I think I dealt with that death in a 
in in a funny way because I have always found solace in my work. And so he passed away in September, at the end of September. And um, at the, I went back to work. I, I had uh, my I had Amelia, my elder daughter, in July. My father died in September. And I went back to work in October and I just went straight into making Saving Face. Um, and, and you know, um, that film changed the trajectory of my life because it, it bought me my first Academy Award. Um, and that was a film that I had. Uh, the, the I have a co-director, Daniel, and he had reached out to me um, when I was pregnant and he had said, do you want to do this film? And I had said, oh, this is not a good time for me because I, I'm pregnant and, you know, my father's not well and I, I don't think I'm going to do this film. And then within a span of three months, everything changed and I and I he reached out to me again and I said, yeah, I, I would like to do the film. And um, and I think that film did save me in some way because it, it, it was a tough film to do and I was dealing with a lot of adversity over there because it was... Um it, it, there was adversity because this is a story that no one wanted told and um, it was also personally difficult for me because the women were disfigured so to wake up every morning and to go um, and film these women who by the way were remarkable because despite their disfiguring they would be smiling and laughing and and I would watch them and I would think look at their lives they are living from surgery to surgery, yet they're finding joy in peeling apples and sharing a joke with their daughter and with the world around them. And that I need to, I, I found hope by watching them. I think they healed me in some way. Mm. Um, and um, I think the film just allowed me to, to sort of... Uh, walk through the morning in a much quicker fashion than I would have otherwise. Yeah. So do you think somehow through the grief of losing your dad that drove you towards that path? Yes, absolutely. It did because I was I didn't know how to handle my father's death and I just threw myself in work and I threw myself in this community um, and the community was women and they were struggling and I was trying in some way to be solace to them, but really yeah. they were being a solace to me. Yeah. So again, it's I have so many conversations like this with this podcast where out of adversity does come something positive. Absolutely. Um, I think that um, what what came out of this adversity was a lesson, a life lesson, that whatever life throws at you, you need to take that, you need to to embrace it, and you need to find the strength to deal with it. Yeah. When life gives you lemons. <laughs> when life gives you lemons. <laughs> um, so, Charmaine, from documentaries to the Marvel franchise to Star Wars, which is unbelievable, how did Star Wars come about? Um, you know, I have been wanting to, um, as a storyteller, I, I dabble in many mediums. I worked in documentary films, I've created animations, I've worked in virtual reality, and live action just seemed like a natural sort of uh, foray for me. And when I did Miss Marvel, I was most excited about the fact that we were giving 
birth to a superhero who was brown and Muslim and really shattering the stereotypes we all hold about who a superhero can be, what she can look like and where she can come from. And and millions of uh, young men and women around the world saw a reflection of themselves in Miss Marvel. And... Um, and I think out of that came Star Wars because, you know, Star Wars is such an interesting step forward, but in not in, in so many ways it isn't because my entire career has been about heroes and it's about heroes facing adversity and it's about them overcoming that and those adversities. And that's what Star Wars is about. It's about heroes. It's about adversity. Um, it's set in this... Um, space opera but really it if you distill it it's about relationships it's about family and it's about um, perseverance and good and bad and um, the dark and the light were you a fan of star wars growing up um i was a fan of star wars um was i a um, star wars diehard live by nerd no, I wasn't. Um, but I really had a lot of respect for what George Lucas had done with Star Wars. The messaging, the story, the visual effects, um, and how it excited children especially, um, and adults, you know. Uh, but, but how it brought young people into the cinema. And my whole career has been about trying to get young people to watch films and see things and affect change in some way. And um, I'm excited to, to take the franchise forward. Yeah. When is the release date? Or is that a secret? <laughs> Are we talking years, though? You, you now work on this for years. Wow. Here's a little secret. I don't think I've ever seen a Star Wars film. <laughs> Well, you might have to now, yeah, Emma. Exactly. I'll have to see the new one. Um, so when you've achieved so much in your career, where do you go next? Like, I, You might not even be thinking beyond Star Wars, but do you think there'll be more documentaries in the future or do you know where you're going to go? I think I will always, at the heart of it, um, be a storyteller and I'll find the medium that is needed to tell the stories that I want to tell. I have never planned my life, Emma. If you had asked me in my 20s, what is it that you want to achieve? Probably wouldn't have been able to give you an answer. You're asking me in my mid-40s, what is it that I'm going to aspire to become? I have no idea. What I will say is that I want to leave a legacy behind where I ha where, where young women who walk uh, the path that I have taken don't have glass ceilings. Know they can direct big budget Hollywood films. Know they can win Academy Awards. Know they can impact legislation. Know they can open doors for other women. Plant the seeds for the next generation of filmmakers and storytellers. That is what I want my legacy to be. So um, perhaps I'm not looking as much forward as I am about the path that I am laying for others to walk on. Yeah, I love that concept as well because I've said before that sometimes I think people set too many goals and then you don't enjoy the process. So we have to think about the now and we have to enjoy the now because if we think about what's to come, then you know before you know it, you haven't enjoyed what you're doing. So that's really inspirational. Um, I can't finish this interview without asking you about interviewing Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> um, 
I grew up watching Oprah like all of us did and being so inspired by it. But one thing I learned from Oprah by watching her is how she approached her subjects with empathy um and she made everyone feel very comfortable. And um when I interviewed her um she, immediately I when I was interviewing her I so much of what I had seen her do was playing through my mind. Um, what a force of nature. What an incredible woman. What a... Um, now, that's a woman that has shattered so many class ceilings. Um, it was such a privilege and an honor to interview her. Um, and, and, you know, um, at the end of the interview, she um, gave me a hug when she found out that I was going to be the first uh, person of color. Um, the first woman to direct a Star Wars film. Uh, she she was just like, you go, girl. <laughs> Career highlight, maybe? Career highlight. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. Um, I do on this podcast, I ask my guests if they feel they are resilient people. Do you feel you are resilient? I think the question really is, why do we have to be resilient? Why is it that... Um, why is it that we have to be made to walk on coal all the time? Uh, I think, of course, I'm resilient. Um, I've seen so much in my life um, and every sort of adversity I've faced is, has has in some way um, made me stronger. But I think it's also made me weaker in other ways. Um, each one of us have a few fights in us. And they should be spaced out. They shouldn't all be together um, because it leaves you, you know, weak and sort of um, unable to, to care for yourself. At the heart of all of this is we can only affect change if we are well, if we take care of ourselves. And so when I think about resilience, I think about things that knock you off your feet that, and you find the strength to stand up yeah. again. And I, I don't want to be knocked back on my feet. I think I would like to take the next, whatever, 10 years of my life in my mid-40s to break glass ceilings, to go to new heights, to be exhil exhilaration maybe, exhilarated, not resilience. Okay. Yeah, see, whereas I would say we all get knocked down yeah. and it's that resilience that allows us to come back up like you said yeah so if we didn't have the resilience would we come back up I think I think everyone has some level of resilience I've had a lot of resilience I've had to deal with a lot of adversity that has come my way and I just am a little tired I'd like to enjoy this time create the films that I that I want to create leave a legacy, build institutions so that long after I'm gone, other people learn film and become artists and um, there is an ecosystem that lives beyond me. Um, so I hope that I don't have to be resilient anytime soon is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Is it, so you're basically saying you don't want to have to be resilient. I don't, I don't want to have to be resilient. Yeah. Um, but I am resilient, but I don't want to have to be resilient. Yeah, as in you've had enough adversities. Let me kind of get on with it now. Exactly. Yeah. I feel feel like I've paid my dues. I, I've paid my dues. You know, yeah. I was a a brown Muslim woman, and I've paid my dues, and I I just want to now sort of 
say thank you very much. I just want to march on now. Yeah. And if you could go back in time to when things were like at their toughest, when you were really going through thick adversities, what do you wish you could have told yourself? I wish I could have told myself that it'll be all right. Yeah, because it is. Exactly. <laughs> Charmaine, where can people find you if they want to know more? Um, well, my work is all over, but um, my production company, SOC Films, um, has a YouTube page, SOC Films. If you Google my name, tons will pop up. Um, we have uh, Instagram, Facebook. We're always putting content out. Um, Miss Marvel is on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Um, I've done a lot of documentary films on HBO. Um, so they're all over the place. Yeah, I actually found one of your documentaries. I watched um, The Girl in the River on YouTube. Yeah, so, so YouTube also has a lot of my stuff on it. And I highly recommend it to anyone listening. Um, thank you, Charmaine, for talking to us today. I think you're an inspiration to young people that if you work truly hard, you can achieve your dream. So thank you. Thank you. What an amazingly inspirational woman Charmaine is. If you enjoyed that episode, please share it with your friends and please rate, review and subscribe to When Life Gives You Lemons and check back in next week for another amazing episode.